This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is June 3rd, 2021. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Goldman, and I was at the radio station from 1986 until 1990. And uh, what shows or programs did you work on at the radio station? Oh, I think the the list of what shows I didn't work on is probably a lot shorter because, mm-hmm. of course, back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, the radio station was in a quite uh, different environment and state. Uh, of course, we were at the basement of Memorial Hall underneath uh, the restaurant Bits and Bites. I don't even know if it's still there anymore. Um And uh, the radio station was more of, I don't want to give it cult status, but it definitely was not mainstream like it was. So anyone who joined the radio station, you were basically responsible for doing many things. Um, You had to do uh, a classics from Hofstra slot in the morning. Um, I did a jazz slot in the afternoon, um, a couple of summers when I was staying on campus to work at the radio station, uh, I was doing some jazz in the afternoons. Uh, and of course on weekends, uh, we did, oh my goodness, we did Basha's Polka and Oberic time. Uh, we did Tony Jackson's Irish country, Pat Thompson's Irish music show, um, uh, I think I even I think I even did an airwave show one night, uh, so um, it was uh, it was uh, quite the quite the gamut. And of course, my my primary my primary function at the radio station was involved in the sports department, and eventually I became sports director my last uh, two years uh, at the radio station. So my junior and senior year, uh, I started out as the assistant sports director for a semester, and then took over for the last year and a half. Okay. So, uh, your titles were in the sports department. You didn't have any other management positions? No, that was it. I was sports director, sports director, 1989 and 1990. Okay. Um, so, uh, when you were on air, did you use your own name? Did you have any nicknames or on air personas while you were there? Yeah, I wasn't clever enough to try to come up with anything. I wasn't hmm. really thinking at that point to be like a radio personality, if you will. So yeah, so I was just plain old, plain old Steve Goldman. Okay. Um, so two-part question and answer however it makes sense to you. But I'm always curious what brought people to the radio station the first time. And then if you could describe what the radio station was like, where it was, maybe some of the people that you met. If you could give us a picture of what Hofstra Radio was like your first time at the station. Sure. Well, what brought me to Hofstra University in general is that my my passion growing up was to be involved in broadcasting, especially be involved in sports broadcasting. And at the time, uh, Hofstra, let's see, so that was 19, so I was 1985 was my junior year of high school. And that happened to be Hofstra's 50th anniversary. So I had heard, because I grew up, I grew up in New Jersey, about 60 miles away from Hempstead. And I had heard a lot of advertisements about Hofstra because it was their 50th anniversary. And I also found out when I went to campus uh, that they had just built their uh, television facility, uh, you know, of course, state of the art, you know, 35 years ago, but whatever state of the art was mm. back then, uh, the Dempster Hall for communications, or actually it was the Dempster Hall um, uh, for uh, television production was being built. So I kind of fell in love with the idea. And of course, the campus itself is just is just gorgeous. And of course the proximity. So Hofstra was pretty much my only, was my only choice, uh, in going to college. Um, 
but in the beginning, um, in, you know, orientation, went to the activities fair and found out about all these different clubs and everything. I, I met people there about the radio station, but I didn't really get a feel for, you know, where to go, when things started and things like that. So I ended up gravitating towards the Hofstra Chronicle. And of course, being a sports person, I gravitated towards the sports department. And I just happened to casually ask someone there um, about the radio station because they said, oh, I know about the, the newspaper, but what about the radio station? And they said, oh, go talk to that guy over there. He's involved in the radio station. And his name was Pete Caldera, who maybe the listeners now know as the Yankee beat, among other things, the Yankee beat reporter for the Bergen record. So I introduced myself to Pete and Pete said, oh, yeah, come down to the radio station. Uh, you know, we're just you know, getting things started and meeting people. So I went down to the basement of Memorial Hall and just in this dingy sort of you know you had to go past the past the bathrooms and mm -hmm. into the offices and everything and of course you know it looked like a typical college radio station which you know back in back in my day that's what it looked like of course now you go to Hofstra and what the college radio station doesn't look like doesn't look like what it does or what it should look like um, you know what the students have now is basically you know better better than probably most professional radio stations that they have um, so I introduced myself and uh, there were people, let's see, Glenn Koch was the uh, sports director and his assistant's name was Stu Rushfield, who eventually became sports director, who became my predecessor. Um, and uh, Mark Ernay uh, was a member down there. Of course, uh, listeners know him from his 1010 Wins News. He's the, he's the sports director at 1010 Wins News. Um, and let me think, there was um, a basketball writer, uh, Jack Staczynski, he was there. So there were so many people there and they were really passionate about uh, about sports and about the radio station. But it was very sort of, I would say, unstructured, uh, even though we, there, there really was a method to our madness back then. But it seemed very sort of haphazard and just kind of like, OK, here's the deal. And we want you to take some classes and uh, get oriented with the radio station. And we clear you as an announcer and as an engineer. And then eventually, once you get cleared, then we'll put you on games or we'll we'll give you we'll give you assignments and things like that. So, you know, I just kind of I just kind of just fell in love with everything. And just basically that was I mean, it was like the first week I was there from school and basically never left for four years. Hmm. So you mentioned getting uh, some training classes at the station and, and getting an orientation. Do you yep. remember anything from those classes, maybe who taught them or things that you learned in particular or other people who were in the classes with you? Well, certainly the, well, let's say the adults in the room, the two, <laughs> obviously back then, uh, of course, the immortal Jeffrey C. Krause, may he rest in peace, and, and Sue Zizza, um, you know, they... Uh, were sort of the catalysts and they kind of were, were basically the wardens uh, keeping the inmates uh, under control. Um, and let me think, I'm trying to think of who my announcing, let's see, there was Paige, uh, her stage name is Paige Allen. Um, let me think, Michelle Lisi, um, I think was one of the, was, was involved uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Kate Kulig um, was another um, announcer. So yeah, it was uh, it was all very quick because it, it it just seemed like you know there weren't a lot of people at the radio station doing things, and they seemed to try to get as many people as they could 
try to accelerate through the process so that they could just get bodies involved and say, okay, now you're cleared. Now you can do this. Now you can do this show. You can do that show. You could do things. Um, so they needed, cause they really needed people to take shifts and they needed people to, to keep the radio station on the air. Um, so the training was very, uh, you know, it was intense, but it was very thorough. And in, and like I said, and I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like it was a Mickey Mouse operation because it wasn't. They were the people that were there were very serious and very passionate about radio and about WRHU especially. Um, it's just, um, you know, the the facilities really didn't lend themselves to any real extensive programming. You know, you learned about the radio station, you learned about the FCC, um, you know, you learned about, um, you know, what it means to be an engineer, what your responsibilities were when you were operating the board, how to work the equipment and things like that. Um, but uh, um, but the training was very, the training was very short. It was very, you know, it very much like, it almost became on the job training. Like a lot of it, a lot of it was kind of learn as you go that, okay, you know, you show prove to us that you can actually do it, but then, okay, get on the air and, and, you know, work it out as you, as you moved. And, and of course, especially the classic, especially with the classics from Hofstra, um, Mm -hmm. one of the things that they emphasized, of course, was the pronunciation guide of the composers and the, uh, and the conductors and things. And certainly Jeff Krause in the office was always listening and, and, you knew, you knew if you weren't saying something right, you could see that red light flashing out of the corner of your eye. And that was the <laughs> phone coming from the office. And, um, you know, Jeff would be telling you, you know, look at the pronunciation guide or make sure you pronounce that person's name correctly. Or he would just flat out say the person's name is pronounced so-and-so. So, you know, I never, never, never really forgot about uh, those kind of early lessons about, um, you know, making sure that, that you were prepared when you were going on the air. Cause you know, the people, the people back in the, the people back in the office were listening and they never let you, they never let you get away with anything. <laughs> um, do you remember your first time getting on the air or getting behind the board? Do you remember if not specifically maybe how you felt? Uh, Cause it sounded like you, you had a purpose, you knew what you wanted to do um, getting there. Do you remember getting started? I- I don't have a vivid memory of the first time I was actually on the air. Um, I remembered that it took me a long time to get what they, you know, I don't know if they still call it, but what they call combo cleared back then, Mm -hmm. which is you had to be voice and engineer at the same time. And as a matter of fact, you know, obviously I can let the cat out of the bag 35 years later. Um, but I was actually combo cleared over the phone. My mentor and friend that I mentioned before, Stu Rushfield, uh, I think I had to do, I think it was doing a game. Uh, I think it was a basketball game during intercession. And I think I had to run the board and I might've even had to do updates or something like that. I can't even remember the specifics, but I said to Stu, I said, you know, I'd love to do it, but I said, I'm not combo cleared. And he, you know, made this really weird noise, like beep, 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 beep. And he said, okay, you're combo cleared. I'm like, okay, great. (laughs) Um, So I, so I did that. Um, But I definitely do vividly remember my first game. Uh, My first basketball game was Hofstra versus Manhattan college. Uh, And it was the championship game of what was known as the Hofstra. Hofstra Classic, even though it was actually the inaugural Hofstra Classic. So we had some fun with that on the air, saying, how could you call this thing a classic when it hasn't even happened yet? Um, 
but Stu was the play-by-play man and I was the color man. And of course it's famous in the annals of WRHU and I don't want to embarrass myself too much, but I'm certain that if somebody's listening out there, they may have a tape of this. Um, but Hofstra actually won the game on a buzzer beater. And I went into this two minute tirade describing what was happening while it was happening after it happened. And when I finally caught my breath and I'm just so excited because, you know, it's the first time I'm on the air and this buzzer beater and this great win and the crowd's going crazy. And I closed it by saying, it's incredible, Stu. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> after, after two minutes of describing it. That's great. Exactly. Right. Uh, so that so that becomes that becomes the running joke, especially around my peers, uh, you know, my friends Tony Sibilla and Marshall Hausfeld and Stu Rushfield, Stephen Oling. That is that clearly is the and like I said, that was the first game I ever did on the air was that game. And that became that became my legacy. Oh, that's fantastic. That is great. Um, but, but I, but I was actually I was actually quite proud to toot my own horn. I was actually quite proud because at the end of that season, um, you know, of course, back then the sports were basketball, were football and basketball. That was pretty much what we did. And of course, back then Hofstra had a football team. Uh, they were Division Three, but it was still a team. Um, and of course, we did men's and women's basketball, and everything everything was live. Uh, and of course, at the end of the season, they had the conference tournament, and I was slated to be the uh, one of the color uh, announcers for the women's basketball tournament. And I didn't really think anything of it. I thought it was great. I thought, you know, thank you for the opportunity. And people were all patting me on the back and telling me how great this is. And it didn't really dawn on me until I guess it was probably before I left to go to the tournament when they said, you know, you're a freshman and they don't like give this opportunity to a freshman that often. And that's kind of when it really hit me about kind of the impact of what I had on the radio station, what the radio station had on me and and how much, uh, you know, my peers thought of the work that I did um during the year so i was i was actually very proud of that and i was uh um i was very uh, humbled that they actually had that much faith in me to, that i could that i could perform especially at that level mm. yeah that is that is a great honor and and i guess this uh, jumping questions here a little bit but my, sure. my my thought is you know when did you feel comfortable at the station when did you feel comfortable on the air when did you know like you were going to stick with it it was it was was it that moment or do you think it was earlier where you said this is where i want to be i never really felt uncomfortable doing a game of course back then with the equip the equipment was the, was the biggest obstacle more than anything else you know back when i was a freshman this is 1980 the the fall of 86 and the spring of 87 you know we didn't even have headset microphones so we had to hold the microphone in one hand and of course we had to have something to write with or something to keep track of or make notes or anything while the game was going on in the other hand and of course you know we had to bring our own equipment even even to the home games, we had to bring the equipment back and forth from the radio station to either the football field or the basketball arena, which back then was the physical fitness center. You know, there wasn't even, you know, the Hofstra arena isn't even built for what, 10 or 11 years after I graduate. Mm. So, you know, we're in this dinky little gym, which basically is no better than a high school auditorium. And we're positioned like in the third row of the stands. There wasn't even a press row at the basketball 
um, facility. So they basically put up tables in the bleachers where we sat amongst the crowd in front of in front of the marching band or the pep band back then um, to do a game. So I wasn't really uncomfortable being behind the microphone, but it was definitely uncomfortable in the situation that we were put in to do it. You know, eventually we got used to it. Eventually we realized that this is the cross that we had to bear and had to put up with it. Um, I would say definitely in the other shifts, you know, the jazz show or the, uh, you know, the classical music show or even airwave, things like that. What made me uncomfortable was I just didn't know anything about the genre. You know, I Mm -hmm. would just basically, I was, I was just basically pulling records. Um, you know, of course, you know, we had formats and everything. So I just had to pick a radio from the, or I had to pick a record from whatever the format was, you know, if it was an A record or a B record or a C record, I picked something and played it. Um, actually an interesting story. Um, I'm uh, operating the board on a Saturday and we're running pre-recorded country music. And one of them was a country music show. And I can't remember her name off the top of my head. I'm sure people are going to be screaming uh, when they're listening to this. But uh, the idea behind the show was they picked a particular theme, if it was an artist or a, or a, a period of music, or whatever it was. And they would play country music. Well, the, the country show was on tape and I'm listening to it. And two minutes in, it doesn't sound right. I keep hearing in the background another country music show. And to me, to me, it sounded like she didn't completely erase that. She used an old tape to make the new show, but didn't completely erase the tape. And all I hear in the background in faint, but you can still hear it, the bleeding of some other show that's being played. So now Mm. I'm hearing simultaneous country music shows. And after about two minutes, I said, I have to stop this and I have to think about what I'm doing. And I'm thinking to myself, what do I know about? I know zero about country music. So I'm trying to think off the top of my head. And I finally had an idea, you know, I've heard of this guy before, so let's do it. And I said, and I stopped the tape and I said, we're going to do an hour show about Willie Nelson. So call in and give me your request about Willie Nelson. Cause I looked at the, I looked in the catalog and I saw all these Willie, Rel- Wilson, Willie Nelson records. And I said, I could fill an hour with this stuff. So we're going to play Willie Nelson, call in, tell me, you know, what your favorite song is, whatever it is. And I'm playing a song after song. And um, the, the, the one song that I knew only because the pet shop boys did a cover of uh, what was it? Was it always on my mind? I think it was all, you were always on my mind. Yeah. So I knew that song. So I played that. I'm playing all this other thing. And somebody calls up and says, can you play on the road again? And I said, Oh, right. That's one of Willie Nelson songs too. I look in the, (laughs) I look in the library. I cannot find a single record that has on the road again. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't that like his most famous song ever? And, and I get on the air and I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, I can't even remember the guy. I'm like, oh, you know, so-and-so called in for the request. And I said, I'm so sorry. I don't have it. And I just ended up playing another song. So I ended up doing an hour of Willie Nelson and did not play On the Road Again. That's, that seems, <laughs> I, I, I believe you, but it's also bizarre. it's like, how did that happen? But, I, but knowing the, knowing the, the archives there, 
it, you know, wound up in the wrong place or someone took it home and yeah, who knows? Or maybe I just didn't look hard enough because you know, you're on the fly and you're doing this thing live and maybe I just, but I, I swear I looked at every single album that was there in the Willie Nelson section, couldn't find it, but yeah, that's so, so yeah. So, so that made me uncomfortable, but yeah, but being and being behind a microphone, talking behind a microphone that never made that. I always felt comfortable doing that. Hmm. So you, you mentioned a, a good number of names, uh, both from the sports department and, and not uh, yes. of people that you worked with. Who are the, mm-hmm. were there any other people that were helpful or that you listened to and thought, oh, that's good. I want to do that. Who are the people that uh, kind of showed you the way there at Hofstra Radio? Well, we definitely had some good uh, program directors and station managers. And of course, I'm going to leave people out, but we had uh, Jim Vazios and we had Jason Levy. Uh, Rich Radabali became uh, station manager. Uh, I think Andrew Schmertz might have been station manager uh, my senior year. Um, you know, we had some really good news people like we had Ethan Drylinger, who was a who was a big news person. Dave Mock, of course, I can't forget. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. may he rest in peace. Uh, you know, Dave was basically he was the anchor of basically like the news division of WRHU. He was passionate about news. Um, I don't know if it anything preceded it, but Dave definitely, from my mind, Dave spearheaded basically Hofstra's election night coverage. Um, he was basically the one that started, um, from my recollection, WRHU going live every election day um, and focusing, of course, not just on the national results, but fo- focusing mainly on uh, the Nassau County results um, um, and the local elections, too. Um, you know, he was very much wired in. Um, so, you know, I tried to listen to as many different people, not just in sports, but in different sort of the areas just to sort of get a feel for their intonation, their inflection, because I'm a very, you know, as people who know me, very hyper and outgoing. And I'm always when I when I'm behind the microphone, you know, thinking about it in retrospect, I'm always, you know, doing this on air voice and very rarely um, only in certain situations. Like I knew that when I did the classics from Hofstra, I had to be conversational. I couldn't be announcing, you know, Mstislav Rostropovich or Eugene Normandy like I'm announcing a basketball score. Like I had to be a little bit more conversational, a little bit more relaxed. Um, And of course, it was in the morning, too. So, you know, just the time of day kind of made it feel that way. Um, but for the most part, I really tried to listen to how people did different shows, uh, at different times of the day to kind of get a feel for, um, sort of how they kind of read the atmosphere of whatever the show that they were trying to broadcast. Hmm. Um, I, I like to ask specifically, uh, for people who did not get a chance to, to work with him or know him, but what was it like, uh, meeting Jeff Krause or getting used to him, uh, you know, meeting him in the basement of Memorial hall. Well, you know, Jeff of course had this very deep resonant voice, you know, he was clearly, you know, he was an English major and he was extremely well-read and believed very much in the spoken word as well as the written word. And he was passionate. He was passionate about it, but he was also passionate about announcing and being a good announcer. And even back then he was still trying to get some voiceover gigs because I, I specifically remember um, in the audio, some of the audio announcing classes where he would actually bring scripts from what he was doing for his auditions 
and mm. had us do them as projects or as classes and even as, you know, a final, even as almost a final exam um, to kind of do those radio commercials. Um, but, you know, definitely he was um, he was definitely intimidating at first. Um, you definitely, you know, got the feel like you had to kind of earn your stripes to even just be able to talk to him. Like he never really made it known, but it was just his demeanor that he would sit at his desk. He would be listening to, he's always listening to the radio station, never not listening to the radio station, even when he wasn't in the office, Hmm. it was almost surprising when you knew you screwed up on the air and the phone didn't ring. Like, oh, I think I got away with something there. And it was pretty rare. It was pretty rare when it happened. Um, But Jeff really wanted everyone there, like I said, to be well-rounded. Don't just be an on-air personality. Be a thoughtful person. Be somebody who reads. Be somebody who has knowledge. Like he would, um, you know, even even in like audio announcing class, he would give like, I wouldn't say trivia quizzes, but he would definitely give like quizzes on general, he would give general knowledge quizzes just to kind of make you realize that you need to know stuff about things. Um, And he was really quite passionate um, about intelligence. And I remember uh, my parents meeting him, I think one of the first times when they came for some orientation or something. And my parents were taken with him right away because they really saw his um, sort of love of knowledge and his passion. And, um, you know, I never forget that he kind of told, you know, he told me and he told them, he said, you know, don't abandon your intelligence, you know, mm. always keep, keep that with you, you know, make sure that you're, that you know things and make sure that you're reading up on things and being aware of things and don't take your knowledge for granted. You know, even if you just want to be whatever it is, you want to be a sportscaster or be a, you know, radio announcer or whatever it is. Um, so, um, and of course, you know, taking some of the, some of the communications classes with him, um, it really was, you really could see the breadth of his knowledge about, especially about the radio industry, um, the history of radio, even though it was a very dry and uninteresting class, he even admitted too. he said, this is going to be a really dry class, Mm -hmm. um, but he's going to try to make it as interesting as possible. Um, And he did because, you know, he really believed in radio, especially believed in uh, what was known as educational radio uh, back then. He really believed in the medium. He really believed that the medium could could have something to say. And he really championed, you know, some of the pioneers of radio, especially people like Edward R. Murrow and uh, Ernie Pyle. And uh, geez, uh, he's, he's, he's going to look down upon me that I can't mm-hmm. remember some of the names, uh, some of the World War II correspondents and what the, how they had to describe things on radio. You know, battles are going on all around them and they're on the radio trying to describe what's happening. You know, he believed in the spoken word, he believed in how radio could be a descriptive medium and um, um, was never lost in this. And then eventually when you got to know him and you got to be, you know, you, you, you got to know, you got to know him a little bit. He got to know you. Um, you could have a conversation with him. You could sit down and you could talk about things with him. Um, I'll never forget uh, after my freshman year, going into my sophomore year, all of my friends, Glenn Koch, Ben Buckwald, Stu Rushfield, uh, you know, Mark Ernay, P. Calder, you know, they all told me, they said, 
you should interview for a position. I said, really? I just, I'm here one year. What am I going to, you should interview for a position. Go interview for sports director. Even though you're not going to get it, he's going to love the fact, he's going to respect the fact that you actually took the initiative and did it. And after a while, I finally summoned the courage to do it and say, okay, fine, I'm going to do it. And and Jeff told me um, not too long after how much he appreciated the fact that I went for that interview and, and dealt with his difficult questions and tried to, he really tried to make me understand what it was like to become a sports director and some of the things and decisions and issues that you had to deal with. And unfortunately I didn't learn that lesson until later on. Um, but looking back on it, um, I really did appreciate almost everything, not almost, I really did appreciate everything that he was trying to say, even though he wasn't directly saying it, Hmm. um, everything that he was trying to say and everything that he was trying, you know, he was the lifeblood of WRHU and, um, you know, everyone who went through um, obviously has their own story and experience. And one more, and I apologize for making this a lengthy answer, uh, but of course it's, it's the nature, it's the nature of me and the medium, but I'll never forget, um, Um, I must've been a junior or a senior and I just happened to wander into the office one day and Jeff is having a conversation with some of the younger people and Jeff sees me walk in. He looks at me and I wish that this would, this looks much more visual, but he looks at me and he snaps his fingers and he points. And my nickname of course, back then was peaches, uh, for a story that I could get to if if you'd like, (laughs) but he says, peaches, give me down home and folksy. And I said, everyone knows Lions Restaurant. And I'm like, how do I know? I've been out of I've been out of that class for two years, and all he had to do was snap his fingers, and a switch went on, and I got into Down Home and Folksy, and I'm doing this advertisement for this place called Lions Restaurant, which was selling like beef. It was a restaurant that sold beef and and other things, and and he looked at his other people. He said, that's what Down Home and Folksy sounds like. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, can I go now? He's like, yes, you could go now. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. So, so you put that out there. We must ask where, where <laughs> did the nickname come from? So everybody in the sports department had a, has a nickname and as a freshman and, you know, we're in these tiny little offices. I mean, these places, I mean, prison cells would like to have an upgrade, um, to look like to look like what we had, um, or I should say, a prison cell would be downgraded to look like what we had. Right. Um, and I'm sitting in this tiny little office, and I'm getting ready to do um, my sports report on the nightly the nightly news show. I wish I could remember what the name what the show was. We did a fifteen we did a fifteen minute news program uh, every night, and there was like a two to three minute sports report uh, that was there, and it was my turn. It was my turn to do that. So I'm sitting there preparing and Pete Caldera pokes his head into the office and says, you know, you don't have a nickname. Do you want to know what your nickname is? And I said, "Uh, sure, I don't care, whatever it is. He pokes his head out. He kind of does this thing, you know, where he looks both ways just to make sure nobody's looking in to see what he is. He pokes his head in and he says, it's peaches. And I said, okay, fine. So, so meanwhile, so I'm like, I'm doing my thing and everything like that. So 
Um, I can't remember how everybody else found out. I don't know if he told them or somehow it got around, but it was clearly a joke. He was clearly saying it just to throw me off that I don't even know if they really had, I think they had a nickname in mind because I was so hyper that they wanted to call me Coco as in like Cocoa Puffs, like Mm. I was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs or something like that. So I think that was the original nickname that they had for me, but I think either Pete told them or somehow word got around to Glenn and Ben and Stu and some of the other people. And they said, all right, let's go with it. We're going with peaches. So it was a complete accident and it's something that stuck with me. And um, I think to this day, um, you know, every so often, especially, you know, Facebook is a wonderful thing and you get to connect with people. So people like uh, Steve Mad Dog Noel and uh, some other people at the radio station, uh, Renee Dupuis, um, every year when I wish them a happy birthday or they'll wish me a happy birthday, they'll always say, you know, happy birthday peaches or things like that. My mm. friend Rye Williams always do that. Um, so it's, it's a name for, for whatever reason, it's a name that's always stuck. And it's a, it's certainly an affectionate nickname to say the least. That is great. That is great. So, so obviously we're having this conversation. We know that Hofstra radio meant a lot to you and we're, we're looking back through the lens of hindsight, but can you put yourself in your own shoes at, at 18 or however old you were the first time you're walking into the radio station? What did you think? Hofstra radio would mean to you? You know, that's a good question. I really couldn't think back then about the impact. I was just so passionate about being on the air, being a play-by-play guy, calling games, doing sports, whatever it was. I never really thought of how it was going to translate because, you know, like I said, when I got there in my freshman year, like the first week, like I didn't even know what radio was like, even when we were doing some of the engineering training and there were people in my class that knew how to queue up a record or they knew how to edit tape and they knew how to do all these things because they had a radio station in their high school. Hmm. And I thought that was the weirdest thing. I'm like, who the heck would have a radio station in their high school? And I kind of felt a little intimidating, like, wow, I'm so far behind. I don't know how to do any of this. Like, I don't know, you know, of course, Back in my day, you know, we had the razor blade and the grease pencil and, you know, we had to physically cut tape and edit and um, and tape it and put it together, um, you know, in a two track studio. And oh, my goodness, if you got into the four track studio where you really could really could play around. So I was just really intimidated by the whole process, like, you know, practicing how to cue up a record and practicing how to turn on your microphone. And of course, the equipment was so. Uh, primitive back then, like even when you flip the switch to turn your microphone on, it would make this very loud click noise, Mm -hmm. you know, because the microphone would go on, but you were still flipping the lever. So the mic is actually live when you're actually clicking the lever forward and you clear and it clearly goes over the microphone. You can hear it. So it took a lot of practice just to learn how to turn on a microphone without making the clicking noise. So people couldn't hear it. And then of course there was the audio announcing that, you know, I had, you know, growing up in New Jersey, you had a Northeastern accent. And um, that was actually something I was quite proud of that I worked very hard to get rid of the accent and try to learn about voice and diction and about learning how to speak correctly and speak clearly uh, and enunciate. Um, and I was actually quite proud of the work that I had to put in just to get that done. Um, and then, of course, reading wire copy, you know, we had this, you know, um, 
you know, dot matrix printer that would spit out news stories every once in a while. And of course, at the top of the hour, when we were um, doing slots, we had to read the the one minute, the one minute uh, news briefing. Mm-hmm. So ripping wire copy and, and practicing reading and things like that. So it was just so there were so many things that I didn't know, you know, you know, what, what do they, they always say the worst thing is, is the, is the things that you don't know, you don't know. Well, mm-hmm. I, there were so many things that I didn't know that I didn't know. Um, and it really became intimidating. Um, and, you know, it took a while, you know, it took, you know, a good solid semester to kind of get used to, um, you know, how everything worked and how the engineering side worked and how the broadcasting thing worked and, um, and how those could, could put together. So, you know, I really didn't know what to expect because all I thought, all I thought was give me a mic, give me a microphone and I'll talk. And I thought that was, I thought that was the, that was the beginning and the end. Hmm. Uh, Steve, it was, it was great of you to share these stories. And, and I finally have now the background, uh, having followed you at the station, uh, by a year you were leaving as I was coming in and seeing your name and that peaches is what, what (laughs) on earth does that mean? And no one ever volunteered and said, so now after all these years, I know. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to come up with more questions and, uh, I'm sure you have more stories and let's do this again sometime. I do look forward to it anytime, Brian. Thank you very much for having me.